The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything that you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads, ensure that you can take on any adventure. Available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone. I've been so pumped to take a couple of friends with our road bikes to some of the trails nearby, and now I can bring the entire crew, my dog, and all of our gear with that third row. Learn more about the new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're tuned in to Heat Check with Trista Crick. On this episode of the Heat Check... The last 72 hours saw three of the most incredible games in NBA history all happen on the same weekend. And you know what? We all witnessed them. I at least witnessed them. From Dame 71 to the Lakers 27-point comeback against Luka and the Mavs to the second highest scoring game in NBA history. It was a historical fiesta for NBA fans. Plus, we get into the hiring of Quinn Snyder for the Atlanta Hawks, which could you say trash, dumpster, fire, train wreck, uh, as well as a little bit of news from around the league. Can't wait to get into it, so do me a favor, Nick. Drop that generic-ass beat. All right, let's start the podcast by saying this, and this is a message for all the NBA haters out there. People who are saying that the NBA product isn't good. People are saying that it's lame, that the NFL is still king, yada, yada, yada. In the last three days, folks, we've had one of the greatest regular season performances of all time with Damian Lillard going off for 71 points. You've got one of the largest comebacks in NBA history. The Lakers claw back against Luka and the Mavs after being down 27 points. And then you add, in my opinion, the best game of them all. The second highest scoring game of all time would have been possibly the highest scoring game of all time if their legs didn't give out in the second overtime when the Kings beat the Clippers 176 to 175 in double OT, which is, in my opinion, the greatest regular season game I've ever seen in my life. That it was that good. All of that happened in 72 hours. So let's start out in my my hometown, Portland, Oregon, because, folks, we've got to talk about something that's not being discussed. People are talking about Dame. They are. Dame Lamont Lillard. But in my view, I do not think they're talking about Dame in the right context. We know Dame is special. We know that Dame time seems to be all four quarters now. But what if I told you that Dame is actually closer 
to a unicorn, to a mythical figure that we only know in history and in the record books and just by his name alone. What if I told you Dame Lillard is actually closer to Wilt Chamberlain than we think? We are seeing something right now we have not seen since the 1960s. Since the age of Wilt Chamberlain when he was putting up 50 with ease. Wilt has always been and I think always will be some sort of creature that we are not sure is of this planet. We are not sure if any NBA player will ever do anything close to what he has done. He has the most 50-point games in NBA history, the highest points scored in NBA history. The list goes on and on, right? He's, he was too big for the era, you know, 6'11 with a 50-inch vertical, right? And Dame right now is putting himself in wilt territory, in the wilt stratosphere. The level of sustained excellence we are seeing from Dame is absolutely unparalleled. He's averaging in his last 10 games, Dame is, 43 points per game. 43 in his last 10. In his last 20, he's averaging almost 40, 39.4 points per game, 7.5 assists, and 5.5 rebounds and a steal a game, and less than three turnovers per game, which when you think about his usage rate, which is pretty much only, it's like you could just say only, usage only, Dame. On the Blazers, uh, for only three turnovers, folks, that's absurd. Since he came back from injury, which is even longer than 20 games, he's averaging just under 35 points per game. So the level of dominance and excellence and scoring and unstoppability and infallibility and like lightning, thunder, crash, boom, just things you don't even have words for is absurd. And if you want to hear something crazy, Will only averaged 39 points in his career twice for a season. Only one of these players is 6'11 with a 50-inch vertical. And the other is uh, just a shade over 6'1 in Damon Lillard with not a 50-inch vertical. Uh, for an undersized guard to be doing what Dame is doing right now is crazy. This is absurd. And it's not just because he's my Portland Trailblazers guard, the greatest blazer in, in history. But if he continues to do this for the rest of the season, the word's going to get around. Just remember, folks, TK said it first, Wilt. We will not have seen a back half of a season like this since Wilt for sure. Let's break down Sunday night. 71 points for our guy Dame, a career high. 71. 22 for 38 from the field, 58%. 59% from three. Six rebounds, six assists. He was so good. How good was Dame? He was so good that he comes off the floor and is feeling the highest of the highs. And the NBA says, we think you're in the highest of the highs, too. We're going to blood test your ass <laughs> for HGH or super serum or something because this is not fucking normal. He had a urine test for HGH the day before and passed it. And they're like, nah, nah, nah. We're going to need to have some of that blood in us. We're going to need to test this again. You could have some horse pee in there that you're hiding underneath your thigh bone and, like, just using it. No. Like, they're like, Adam Silver's like, listen, 
I think Dame Lillard is taking that super serum, that super soldier serum. He's stopping Hydra bombs by day and is bombing from the logo by night. That's what Dame is on right now. Some Marvel Universe type shit. Like, this guy is in the MCU. We got to make sure uh, that we get some of that blood to figure out what's going on. This is what he said directly after the game. Dame, we're starting. Oh, thank you. We're starting off this interview with a splash, literally, an absolutely legendary performance, career high, 71 points, 13 three-pointers. Can you try to describe what we just witnessed from you tonight? Uh, I mean, we got, I think, 23, 22 games left after this, um, and we need to win as many as possible. And uh, you know, obviously, being short-handed. I know that it's going to be a team effort, but I feel like I got to, you know, do my best to be aggressive uh, and just try to do what I can to make sure that we get some wins. And, you know, that's all the case was was tonight. I wanted to be in attack mode. I got it going and I just stayed aggressive. Yeah, I mean, this team's not good. We need Dame time all the time. It's basically right. If you haven't seen the video, Dame is just mobbed by his team. They're just pouring everything on him probably some sort of neutralizer for the super serum he's been taking to prevent Adam Silver from finding out with the blood test. Nobody was more excited for Dame than the rest of the team, right? And the word, the reason why is the first words out of his mouth was like, listen, this team has to win. We only got 20-something games left in the season. We are in squarely in play-in tournament zone. We are outside the play-in tournament. And so thus, I've got to carry the load. And we should have probably seen it coming this performance, because I don't know if you saw it, it happened during the weekend, it got went viral a little bit, uh, is that Dame Lillard joined Andre Iguodala and Evan Turner, who's maybe got the worst voice in NBA history, uh, joined them on their podcast, and this is what he had to say about the, the critics, the people who are basically sleeping on Dame, no matter what he does. They, they never, they'll never give me credit for what I've actually done, unless I just come out here and win the championship in Portland, mm-hmm. and they better hope that don't happen. <laughs> well, like they better said, pray that I don't win the championship for the Blazers. And, it, I get, and, that's, and that's very true. And they better all, pray because the same way you like, they don't know that side. They, gonna, <laughs> they better pray I don't win the Yeah, no, that's, that's big facts. And following that game, Lillard now has more 60-point games, which is five. He has five in his career or more, than Steph Curry – LeBron James, Shaquille O'Neal, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Tim Duncan, Bill Russell, and Kevin Durant combined. Dame has more 60-point games than those legends combined. Of course, we know Wilt has 32 games where he scored 60 or more, which sort of drives home my earlier point. Like, Dame is on in another level right now. He is the oldest 60-point scorer in NBA history at 32. And I guess the nice thing about Dame getting injured for three or four years where he had an abdominal injury he didn't tell anybody about that was keeping him from doing all activities pain-free, uh, he said that he's fully healthy. Now he feels like he's 26 again. It's like, I feel like I turned back the tape a little bit. 26-year-old Dame in the body, 32-year-old mind of Dame. That is trouble for the rest of the league. And I said it earlier, maybe a few episodes ago, and I'll say it again. I don't care if the Blazers win games. <laughs> I do not care. This is Dame Lillard on the map. This is Dame Lillard in uh, rarefied air. 
Blazers are going to win games if Dame keeps doing this. Don't, don't you worry about it. Dame keeps scoring 70, 60. Dude is on fire. 43.2 points per game in his last 10, like I said. This is ridiculous. He should be in the MVP category. If the Blazers were doing anything but sitting there at the bottom of the standings, he would be top five, top three MVP. Again, these are wilt numbers, folks. And not something I thought I would ever say. I never thought I would put Dame and Wilt in the same sentence. But here we are. We have 20 games left for the Blazers. Dame is now can't miss TV. I don't care if you're on the East Coast. I don't care if you're in Bali. I think you need to just set your fucking alarm clock because Dame time is now all the time. And as a lifelong Blazer fan, that's all that we can hope for is being relevant and exciting and something that national TV wants to discuss on a daily basis. So Dame could have grabbed all the headlines by himself last night, but something fascinating happened. Something, as a Blazer fan, I don't really care to discuss, but for the people, we will. For the people, we will not brush it off and discard it as an anomaly or as an abhorrent situation. The Los Angeles Lakers were in Dallas, and they might have saved their season by staging what would also be something historic in their comeback. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the comeback. The coming back, that's fine. The comeback itself was amazing. But it, and that would have been worth talking about anyway. But it's how they came back. It's not just a barrage of threes, which let's be honest, the Lakers are never going to give you a barrage of threes. But what it was was lockdown defense against one of the most difficult guys to defend and stop in the league. Luka Doncic, one of the most unguardable dudes in league history. Plays at his own pace, is absolutely a load on the, on the court. You cannot move him, you cannot stop him, and yet the Lakers did. Kyrie and Luka ran off to a huge first-half lead. Looked like the Lakers were cooked. They then rallied, as we'll get into. Vanderbilt and Austin Reeves locked down Luka while... LeBron looked really good, and AD pretty much looked like he should be the guy that the Lakers run their offense around. The Lakers end up stealing a win that they should not have won, but absolutely needed on the road. Huge W for a team that most people have written off, even after the trade deadline. And as a uh, world-class, lifelong Laker hater, it pains me. It pains me to say that the Lakers are just not the same team as they were before the deadline. They were dead. They were barbecued chicken. They were not just barbecued chicken. They were the a little piece of coal inside of the barbecue. Like, that's how cooked they were. They had been on the grill a long time. And if they had, and even Ro- Windhorse said this on his podcast, if this roster was the roster that they came into the training camp with, they'd probably be a five seed four seed this is this is a really good roster top six team in the west for sure probably most of it having to do with Jared Vanderbilt a player that nobody seemed to feast after at the deadline which made no fucking sense Malik Beasley who can shoot D'Lo who had an ankle injury last night and didn't actually even play but he's been a bucket 
And I don't really know why people whiffed on Jared Vanderbilt. It doesn't make any sense to me. He's probably the most important new Laker on this team. Why, you say? How, you say? Vanderbilt. Jared Vanderbilt, as a primary defender on Luka, Luka was 0 for 3 with one assist and five turnovers, all caused by Vanderbilt, who either forced a turnover, intercepted a pass. Seven-foot-one wingspan our guy Jared Vanderbilt has that allows him to stay big, stay long, stay active against a very huge Doncic, like a guy who's just very crafty, moves at his own pace, and gets around pretty much everyone. Messed with the step back multiple times, cut off passing lanes when he wanted to drive. Vanderbilt's five deflections led the Lakers and was almost as many as the entire Mavs team had by themselves. Yeah, he was also, by the way, six for eight from the field shooting, had 17 rebounds. This was a guy that Minnesota had, and they just gave him up. They just gave him up for Rudy Gobert and other things. Like, they gave other things up, too. He was a plus 14 in 27 minutes. Had eight offensive rebounds himself. That's incredible. I am shocked that teams like the Blazers didn't go after him. Like, teams like the Kings, a contender like the Suns, a contender like the Bucks. Like, you gave up five second-round picks for Jay Crowder. You couldn't give one first-round pick and four second rounds for Jared Vanderbilt? I know you want a veteran, but, like, Jared Vanderbilt's pretty good. He's going to be good for a long time. And this led me to a question because you had the Clippers game and you had the Lakers game, and so I was thinking about them both, and I wondered to myself, who got better more? Like, who got more better between the Clippers and the Lakers? I know that's, like, a ridiculous way of saying it, but that's how I think about it. So, like... Who had the better roster upgrade? Because it's, like, pretty close. They got both a lot better. I love the fact that the Clippers got Gordon, Plumlee, Bones, Russell Westbrook. I don't really love the West- Russell Westbrook, but it's a part of their situation. And the Lakers team, though, is completely unrecognizable. They got Rui from the Wizards, but then you add in D'Lo, who is out against the Mavs, like I said, Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, all of that changed this team. For the first time all year, the Lakers are long. They can switch. They can play defense in the same athletic way that they won the title in the bubble. They can shoot, and it all shows. They can just do more things. Like, Darvin Ham can just be a better coach because, like, he has the pieces for them to do those things he wants them to do. And watching that game made me realize that, like, what Darvin Ham at the All-Star game, we said, Remember what he said? He said, hey, we are not doing any of that load management shit anymore. No more. Nobody. From 1 through 15, there is no more of that. No more sitting out for the rest of the year. And damn, if we didn't see an example of that come down to the wire and show us exactly that it was true, he said, whoever could play is going to play. And sure enough, in the fourth quarter, LeBron James, LeBron James sprained his fucking ankle so bad he had to take his shoe off, rolled around in abject pain in ways that made my own ankle hurt. And what did he do? He put that shoe right back on and he ran back down the court. He didn't even come out for a second. Yeah. And, like, injuries are a concern for the Lakers. And you've had AD miss time and Braun miss time and Reeves miss time and Schroeder miss time. And Braun, of course, is the centerpiece of that. 
So when he was down in clear pain, it was like, oh, shit. They are done. Is it the rest? Is Braun done for the season? No, no. He put that shoe back on, tied it tight, and just kept it moving. This is what he said uh, after the game when they asked him about his ankle. To get the foot ankle question out of the way so we can talk about the game, uh, you were down for a little bit there, obviously stayed in and finished the game out. Uh, how does it feel and, and you know, any different from the last couple weeks? Uh, it's been better. Uh, that's for sure, but um, definitely wasn't uh, going to go to the locker room and not finish the game out tonight. Um, just, you know, understood the importance of the game and then the momentum that we had. I felt like we could, you know, steal one after being down. But um, we monitor the next couple of days, see how it feels, and go from there. Woo! He said it's been better. Yeah, no shit. That ankle injury looked, and it was a non-contact, just, just sprained it on its own, looked bad. And earlier this week... He said they'd basically have to carry him off the court to keep him from playing out the rest of this year. So he's going to muscle his way through the playoffs. And that was not hyperbole. He gutted that game out. When the Lakers needed him, he continued to play on what is probably a very painful ankle injury. And so when LeBron is 38, this is a 38-year-old man. This man is ready to collect his AARP card and his Social Security from the NBPA. And when he's out there risking further ligament damage, Braun is not allowing anybody out there like Malik Beasley to do any shenanigans. Like, there is no more A. Disney. There is no more uh, paper skin and bones of whatever they say, glass, for Anthony Davis. No more street clothes A.D. is stops right now. If he's putting his body on the line, then... AD sure as hell is going to be doing the same and to make sure that everyone else is going to do it as well. And so as much as I hate to say it, because I do, uh, the Lakers are really fun. Yeah, they're really fun to watch. They are. They're like the most fun that they've been since LeBron got there. Um, They're really dangerous. They play really good offense and defense. They, If they make the play-in tournament, I would be worried if I was the other team. Like, if you're the Warriors and you play the Lakers, it's basically the exact same thing that happened the year before, or the time before, when it was uh, 2021. And it's night-night sleep mask for our dubs. Like, if you are the team that plays the Lakers in a seven-game series, uh, also have fun with that. Like, have fun with that dogfight. You remember New Orleans when they played the Phoenix Suns last year, and then things were so bad for the Phoenix Suns in that seven-game series that they all got covid and they just died against the Mavs the next round, that's whoever plays the Lakers in the first round. Maybe the Lakers don't beat you, but they beat you uh, in continuity where you're basically knocked out. Put so much pressure on you that you're going to be so sapped that whoever you play next is just going to cruise. Just cruise along. Suns, looking at you. Nuggets, looking at you. Mavs, Looking at you. You better fucking pray you don't get the Lakers in the first round or it is going to be night-night sleep mask. And this team is fascinating. They are fun. And why didn't they do this before? Like, why? I don't know how Rob Plinka pulled it off, but I tell you what, he just finally did something that a GM is supposed to do. Next 20-something games are going to be very interesting. Two games. Dame going crazy. Lakers, historic comeback. 
Still not the greatest thing I saw on the weekend. Not even close. I don't even know how to describe what I watched. I, I'm not sure. The Kings and the Clippers. The, the Clippers were down 14 points with three minutes left to go, and the Clippers statistically had a 98% chance of winning, according to ESPN stat metrics. Narrator. They did not win that game, Clippers. They lost. And the Kings and the Clippers game ended with two overtimes, 351 points scored. The live over, the total in the game for betters, was 290.5, which is an absurd number in its own right, at the end of the third quarter. It hit the over with three minutes left to play in the fourth quarter, and it sailed almost 60 points over that stat line. Crazy. It was the second highest scoring game in NBA history. But it was, to me, that that actually cheapens it a little bit because it was a lot more than just a barrage of points, right? You had a drama, a storyline the entire way. First of all, you knew that the Clippers are trying to come back in the standings against their division rival. Anyone who has the Kings to win this division, this is a very important game as the Clippers try to claw in. It's Russell Westbrook's first game as a Clipper. He had massive impact in that game as the Clippers' offense was running much faster, much smoother. Anytime he was on the wing and got the ball, he attacked. Got Damanis Sabonis in foul trouble. He had 17 points, Russell Westbrook. 7 for 13 shooting. Plus 3 when he was on the court. That, that was an important showing for Russell Westbrook. And second, although you're going to want to say, well, it was all offense. That's all it was. No defense was being played. That's why I hate the NBA, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Both teams, yes, they shot 60% from the field overall and almost 60% from three, both of them. But you had some incredible Kobe Bryant-like shot making going on. You had multiple defenders draped on players, traps, and you had Fucking Kawhi Leonard step back three with two guys in his grill and he's just hitting that? That was the kind of offense that we got to see. And in the final three minutes, the Kings caused turnovers on five consecutive possessions. Fox himself responsible for three three turnovers in a row. You had bench players scoring 40-plus in Malik Monk, going crazy with his best friend. There were multiple seemingly knockout punches thrown, mostly from the Clippers to the Kings. Multiple comeback runs. Key players in foul trouble like Damanis Sabonis. Westbrook fouled out. So did Sabonis. Kawhi Leonard, 12 for 14 in that game at one point. Pretty much unstoppable no matter what you threw at him. One shot looked like it was the first bad shot he had thrown up all game. Shooter's touch, roll right in. It was incredible. Paul George hit a half-court shot at the end of regulation that would have robbed us of the two overtimes, but he was a millisecond too late. You had star players sitting out the second overtime because, fuck it, dude, we can't do this anymore. We've got load management to deal with. Paul George sat out the second OT. It was one of the most entertaining games I've ever seen on a basketball court. And it came down to a missed three-pointer at the end of the second overtime. Which, by the way, was bonkers because 
why is Norm Powell involved in the offense in any way when Kawhi Leonard is right there underneath the basket and definitely will draw a foul when you're down two? I don't understand. Down one, actually. I don't understand it. Why shoot a three in that scenario? But it was also something important there. The real reason that I enjoyed this game so much. Man, the Kings are gritty. They are never stopping. They are hard rocks. You talk about guys who just, when they when they uh, get down, they just lay down and stay down. They are not going to lay down. They are the product of Mike Brown and the symbol of a winning coach who has brought a culture that people thought would not be possible for this organization. A coach that said at this part of the season, right now, after the All-Star break, with only 20-something games left, he said, yo, this is when the real season starts. This is it, really. Like, all the other bullshit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all fun and games. This right now, this is when teams say, oh, like, we got to get ready for the playoffs. We got to solidify our spot in the standings. This is where he said the Kings are going to be hunted. We are now the hunted. Have you ever heard anyone say that about the Sacramento Kings? Like, they are coming for us. And you know what? We're going to hunt them right back. We're not going to allow ourselves to slide down the standings and just be happy with being a fun little story for the first 60 games and then be a playing team. No, no. Three seed. That's us. When you've got the three seed Kings being hunted by rivals in the division alone, like the Phoenix Suns with Kevin Durant coming back, the Clippers with the whole new roster, our dubs who look dead but are never dead. Mike, Mike Brown has done something in one year that almost nobody has. They turned a team that many people thought wouldn't even win 30 games into a team who legitimately, after... That game, 176-175, and they, at, they were asked about, oh, yeah, like, what's up with these, this, this Clipper team? Like, how would you feel about playing against him, playing against them? You had Deer and Fox and Malik Monk saying, we don't give a fuck who's over there. Literally, that's what they said. When specifically referencing playing against a former MVP in Russell Westbrook, a two-time finals MVP in Kawhi Leonard, and an all-NBA player in Paul George. And you know what? They said, we do not give a fuck about who we play. They are not scared. Why are they not scared? Because somehow Mike Brown, with this collection of really interesting pieces, has turned the Sacramento Kings into a team who can just outgun you. They are averaging 118 points per 100 possessions, which is not only number one in the West. That offense is not only number one in the NBA. That offense is the best offense in NBA history right now. Yeah, that is what they did. They have turned themselves into a gunner. They can shoot the three with Kevin Herter. Keegan Murray and Harrison Barnes. We know that they do that really well. They have Sabonis, who's a walking double-double. De'Aaron Fox, who is not getting nearly enough shine right now. Averaging over the past month, 32-7-4 on 54% shooting and is legitimately the best clutch player in the NBA. First in clutch points, first in field goal percentage, first in paint points, First in points off of turnovers and first in fast break points. All of those for our guy, Foxy. Which now has turned in 
to a slight conflict for me. National media hype. The Kings are now getting national media hype. On one hand, I was pissed that nobody wanted to give Sacramento any, even hope, that they would do anything, if even mediocrity, before this. Like, I said, oh, maybe I'm crazy for thinking there'll be a play-in team. I remember sitting right here in this spot being like, oh, yeah, like uh, I actually thought they'd be better than that, but I was so afraid of people calling me an idiot. This is not your father's Kings team before the season started. And the other conflict is that the more people who stop slandering the Kings, the better, right? That's good. But I'm kind of like, you're a little late. You're a little late. It's awesome to see this franchise do well. It's a great fan base. I love to see them get a little bit of national love. But we don't, we don't need full-scale conversion. We don't need them losing the chip on their shoulder. They are the three seed right now with 20 games left to go. So part of it is like, were you just waiting for the Kings to just fall off the map? Just never, ever report what was going on and just pretend like it was a little blip on the radar? And now that there's 20 games to go and they've been sitting at the three spot for like two months, you're like, well, we should probably flex them to a national televised game or two. But... It's a credit to Mike Brown, man, his winning mentality, because all he does really is win. He got fired for winning, Mike Brown. 41-25 and as the coach of the Lakers, and he got fired five games into the next season after he took over for, for Phil Jackson. Like, that's how much Mike Brown wins is, like, even that level of success wasn't good enough for the Lakers. And the Lakers, since him, outside of the bubble, have had eight of ten losing seasons since they, he's coached them. So there, there's that. He spent seven years in Golden State, as we know, which you already know what time it is there. Lots of winning. He spent time in Cleveland, which you know, a lot of winning with LeBron James. And very typically, the media was very late on Mike Brown as well. Mike Brown, I decided I would head over as I was doing this piece. Maybe I'll head over to the little sports book, sprinkle a little money on Mike Brown, coach of the year. Who knows? Maybe it'll be 5 to 1, 6 to 1, 7 to 1, something. You know, nobody's thinking about Mike Brown, right? Nobody's thinking about him. Nobody's thinking about the Kings. Uh, well, that 176-175 sort of changed the odds a little because as of today, Mike Brown is currently leader in the clubhouse for Coach of the Year, plus 110, which is basically barely even money. Barely. There is no value there. You heard that right. A Sacramento Kings head coach is the odds-on favorite to win Coach of the Year. If you had to guess where Mike Brown was at the opening as of October 2022, do you think he was like, what, top 15, top 20, top 25? None of those. So it was Chris Finch at 10 to 1, was number one, leader in the clubhouse. Ty Lu 12 to 1, makes sense. That Clipper team had a lot of steam. Joe Mazzulla. Didn't make any sense. Boston Celtics had just come from the finals. You have to improve a lot in order to get coach of the year. How is he going to do that? 14 to 1. Willie Green, 15 to 1. A lot of steam on the Pelicans and them being great in the West. Michael Malone, I guess you thought already everybody was going to be healthy for the Denver Nuggets. JB Bickerstaff at 6. At 16 to 1. Makes sense. You got Donovan Mitchell. And Mike Brown sitting at fourth from the bottom at 80 to 1. God, somebody, I need to know who placed that bet. 80 to 1, Mike Brown was, to currently plus 110 
should anyone have been surprised? I mean, he's not looking at a team for the Kings that's trying to lose. Not wanting them to just keep their head above water. He wants them to continue to put their boot on the neck. And the schedule lines up for the Kings to do that. Put their boots on the necks. Their next five games, Thunder, Clippers, Wolves, Pelicans, Knicks. All winnable for the last four at home besides the Knicks. And so, to me, the way that I know that the Knicks mania is real, for the first time I can remember, TNT flexed a Kings-Knicks game into primetime on the national feed at the expense of Giannis and the Bucks versus the Nets. Better late than never, but while you're at it, folks, warm me up on that purple beam, baby. Let's move on. We talked about the dysfunction in uh, Atlanta multiple times now. I don't need to say how I feel about it. That franchise is a mess. And uh, Nate McMillan, of course, became the, another, the next one to bite the dust, as they say, after Travis Schlenk. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this organization is, like, nuclearly toxic. But the way that I know for sure is that when asked about Nate's firing, Trey Young said he was, quote, honestly surprised by it. The most amazing thing, I think, about that statement is that it's only two words and both words are lies. Like, both, the, both words are lies. Like, honestly surprised. You were neither of those things. Trey is not being honest. That negates the first word. And he was definitely not surprised because he definitely made that firing happen, either subliminally or very overtly, given the fact that Sham said that the Hawks were trying to get him to resign for multiple weeks before actually firing him. So definitely not surprised and definitely not honestly surprised. So the Hawks apparently were just interested in one candidate, Quinn Snyder, who's a really, really good coach, but not a great fit in my opinion. Uh, I like him a lot, but... This guy's got to have PTSD for Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Like, has to. Has to. He probably aged him. Did you see what he looks like? Quinn Snyder at the end of that thing looked like he needed cocaine just to stay awake. He looked like he needed all-nighters, rails on top of rails, bitches, money, parties, disco balls, just to continue doing his job. How is he going to do in Atlanta? How is he going to deal with a reboot with Trey Young? More cocaine. I don't know how that's going to work, dude. I do not know. He's got a five-year deal now with one of those years being now, which I think is funny. Like, the first year is 20 games. Get your money, guy, I guess. Money has not been disclosed yet. I can't wait to find out what that number is. Uh, I cannot imagine he wouldn't have benefited from waiting until the offseason. Uh, better jobs would have come open, but they must have given him the bag. But now he's in Atlanta for the foreseeable future. And now he's also lying, uh, trying to be optimistic because he's got his money too. He said this, I think players want to get better. I think they want to be coached. The relationships are what allows you to coach them effectively. How did it work when Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert didn't like each other? How did that work? How is it going to work when John Collins is still on this dog shit team and Trey Young won't pass him the ball? Do you not understand what Trey Young does? Trey Young just dribble, 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 shoots from 30, 
floater, floater, lob. Maybe drive and kick. He does not have a reputation for being like a coachable player. He does not have a reputation of like Trey Young has constantly improved throughout the course of his NBA career. Trey Young is averaging the worst percentage from three in his life right now. He's actually regressing. So for Quinn to be like, I think players want to get better inherently is a lie. In fact, only about 5% of players in the NBA want to actively get better and actively coach. The other ones want to coast. That's what they do. They want to enjoy their money, enjoy their life, be a human being, and hoop. That's what they want to do. What do you think Trey Young's going to do when you're like, hey, we're actually running uh, running things through DeJounte Murray now? <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to be good. When you ask Trey, like, hey, how do you feel? We need to know if you're playing tonight. And he tells you, fuck off. I'm going to decide last minute. How are you going to deal with that? Say, like, I'm going to let you know at game time. How will I know? I'll be there in my uniform. How will you not know? I won't be there on the bench at all, like he did to Nate McMillan. There is a decent chance this goes sideways. Like this, I'm saying it now, February 27th, 2023, this thing could go off the rails in 12 months. If there is any hope for a rapport between Quinn Snyder and Trey Young, you can thank Donovan Mitchell for that. According to reports, Snyder and Trey Young are both expressing an enthusiasm to begin working together. Donovan Mitchell profusely praised Snyder in a private conversation with Trey Young and told him how instrumental the coach had been in his own development into an all-star. Also, quick little note, nobody asked Rudy Gobert his opinion. Uh, Rudy Gobert was not stumping for Quinn Snyder. But if Trey is looking at Quinn as someone to help him get into a new stratosphere, maybe, maybe that will work. But that will actually require some level of self-awareness, some level of, of intrigue and coachability, court awareness, just all kinds of things. Better shot selection, which is pretty much a tall task, which we've seen very little from Trey Young. All of this begs the question, which I'm sure will, someone will ask Quinn Snyder sooner than later. Quinn Snyder, who is harder to coach, Rudy Gobert or Trey Young? And I bet it's going to be Trey Young because this Hawks team has a lot of talent but is a long, long way from being a contender, even with a good coach, elite coach like Quinn Snyder at the helm. That's all the time that we have for this episode of the Heat Check. Check back Friday morning for an all-new episode. Do not forget to watch the feed for past episodes and interviews and for bonus episodes that drop unexpectedly throughout the week. And please follow the Heat Check as the season heads towards the playoffs. Download, subscribe, tell your friends, every single one of them. And follow us on social at, at this Heat Check and at Trista Crick on TikTok because you know what? The Heat Check never sleeps, especially during a record-breaking weekend like this past one. We'll see you next time, folks.